Well, good morning. It is always good for us to be together, uh, even on a weekend like this, where we've we got a lot of people out of pocket and traveling for this first kind of full weekend of summer. It's, it's good for us to be together here. It's good for us to know that people are joining us uh, kind of wherever they are online. In fact, I just was texted by my daughter Riley, who's in Angel Fire, New Mexico, saying, we just saw you. I, th- I think it was right after uh, James, your kids, uh, played the music for you to get off the stage. Right around that time, she, she saw us. So uh, it, it's amazing to me that we're able to be together in a number of ways And we're able to be together spiritually in the sense that God has called us not just to a room or to an hour, but to a community, a community that we call church. And for me, it's it's a community that has been at the heart of my life for my entire life. For others of us, it may be something we're new to, and and regardless of it, I I can't speak for anyone else, but I, I can at least confess to you that this this focus, this study that we've been in for the last couple of months, it, it has really challenged me. Uh, it has been something that's caused me to rethink a lot of my assumptions about what it means to be someone who belongs to a community that we call church. Uh, what does it mean to be somebody who has promised, no matter how far I've come, I've promised to continue on this journey of becoming more and more like Jesus, not only for my own sake, uh, but for the sake of, of others, for really for the sake of the world. That that's how big the horizon is when it comes to, to who God is calling us to be. It's not just for one other person who we might happen to be around at any given moment. It is for everyone. That, that we are caught up in the same world-changing mission that Jesus gave his life for. And so as we think about what does it mean to be those kinds of people... We want to pay attention to somebody like the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Corinthians is laying out for us his sense of what we're supposed to look like, how we're supposed to behave, who we're supposed to be. And and for the first, I want to give us a little background information as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Before we open our Bibles up to that, I just want to kind of give us a sense of where we are. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, You know, Paul is kind of laying the theological groundwork to say, look, you're no longer somebody, you may live in the world, but you don't belong to the way of the world anymore. You now belong to the way of Jesus. And even though our world is is kind of completely overrun with this cutthroat competitive spirit of, of however much you have, there's always more you're missing out on, and if you have to take it from somebody else, you'll take it, that, that maybe life is only worth living if you're famous and a bunch of people who you don't, you're not actually in a relationship with, but, but they know who you are, and they're impressed by you from a distance, that that's, that's the kind of life that you want to have, and maybe church can, can help you have that kind of life. And, and Paul says, no, that's, that's not at all what life's really about. Life's about connecting with other people and sharing Jesus, knowing somebody, not just face to face, but heart to heart and soul to soul. You may live in the world, but you're not supposed to belong to the way of the world anymore. And then he shifts from that theological bedrock that he's been building to say, okay, now let's, let's not just think about that, but, but let's learn how to think together as Christian people Let's have a, a crucified imagination as we look at the, the circumstances and the, the situations that people are in that we're trying to, to bring Christ into. And so he gets into this, 
this place in the letter, and really it's going to last for the, the rest of it. He's, he's trying to take very specific situations in our world and in our lives, and he says, as I think about it as a Christian with that crucified imagination, these are the possibilities that I see. And so as he gets into chapter, you know, uh, really six and seven, we talked about last week, he, he reimagines how we should relate to one another in a world that has lost the sense of importance for the gift of the covenant of marriage, right? And, and he, he calls the church back to that to say, okay, what kind of difference should Jesus's way of life, death, and resurrection make when it comes to how we relate to one another in covenant, and then he, he starts to talk a little bit about conflict in the church, you know, because whenever you get a few people together in one place, eventually there's going to be misunderstanding. Eventually there's going to be conflict. So how do crucified people, how do they deal with that? And he says, you, you find a way beyond the issue back to your brother or your sister. And then he, he kind of turns the page from that and he says, okay, well, what does it mean for us to be people who've been set free by Jesus, but because we're trying to stay together and share life together, and because we have different strengths and weaknesses, because we, we have different ways that we, we struggle and different ways that we overcome, how do we live as free people when we're, we're not all the same exact person? And so he digs into this concept of freedom, and he says, you know, our freedom in Christ it, it doesn't mean that we're free to be anyone we want. That that's what the way of the world would tell us freedom means, but that's, that's not how we see freedom. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean we get to be anyone we want. Freedom in Christ means that we've been set free from anything that might hold us back from being more and more like, like Jesus. Now, there's a difference between being told you've been set free and experiencing that freedom. Right. We never thought that we would really be dog people, but a couple of years ago, Reese, our youngest, it was, relentless. It was a relentless assault, <laughs> and it, she never slept. It was, I'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she'd be two inches from the bed, and she'd say, can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? It was, I'm, I'm kidding, but it was close to that bad. And she wore me down. And finally, I had to turn to Lauren and say, okay, I think it's over. We're going to have to get a dog. So we have this dog. Uh, She's named after my favorite baseball player, Buster Posey, on the Giants. And they they beat the Dodgers last night. You might have missed that, but I just wanted to share that with you. So there's one part of my world that's perfect this morning uh, because of that. So, okay, so this dog, it's it's a, a golden doodle because every dog is a doodle now. But anyway, it's a golden doodle, right? And so we have this cage, and we put her in it when we leave the house, because we, part of the reason I love that dog is because it hasn't destroyed my house yet. And I, so I'm trying to maintain a relationship with this dog where we like each other. So we put, we put Posey in a cage every time we leave the house. We have discovered accidentally that at some point, Posey figured out exactly how to get out of her cage. Like, it's not an accident. She knows exactly how. It's, it's creepy. You know, she puts her paw, and she just pops the gate, and she's out. And one of the ways we figured it out was we put her in the cage once, and we stayed in the house a little bit longer than we normally do, and we hear, pop, and she comes walking out like, oh, I didn't know we were staying around. 
here's what's really interesting. Um, she only does that, she only gets out of that cage if we're hanging around. If we put her in that cage and we leave, she never gets out. And I've been thinking a lot about, this is what happens when you're preaching on a series, right? You have thoughts and it's like even your dog makes it into the sermon. Because I thought, I wonder how many ways in my life I've been told by God that I've been set free but because I, here's my theory on the dog. She feels secure in that cage when we're gone. She doesn't want out. Even though she could get out, she doesn't want out. And I, I wonder, what about in your life too? I want you to think about it. What are the things that we've, we've been told by God? It's declared over us that we've been set free from the power of sin and death. And how often do we give in to the fear? Or, or do, we, do we give in to the temptation to say, you know, I can't overcome whatever this is. Well, yeah, you can't, but God can. And God's declared freedom over us. But we would say, well, I, yeah, but this is what I know. This feels like home to me. This cage that I can get out of feels familiar enough to me that I'm not interested in leaving it. Right? That's, that's part of what's going on here for Paul. Is he's saying, look, you've been declared by God. You're set free to become more and more who you were born to be, which is not just the truest version of yourself. It's Christ in you. Right? And, and why haven't we experienced more of that truth of Christ saturating our souls to the point where our instincts are his instincts? The way we react in the moment, it's not like we just have to have a strategy or a plan, although that's a part of spiritual maturity too, as, as James talked about. We want to have practices that help guide us, but those are training wheels, right? The hope is that over time, those practices aren't just something outside of us that we do and we rely on, but they become who we are. We have been set free. I think too often, we either don't embrace that freedom or we abuse it to say, look, I, I can be anyone I want to be, and God's going to forgive me. I, I, can, I can do anything I want to do. I can say anything I, I want to say, and there's grace for that. Yeah, there is grace for that, and there's also grace to help you restore what you've broken. And so the, the challenge is when we think about the concept of, of freedom, and look, it, it's Memorial Day weekend, right? It's on our minds as, um, as Americans, that, that freedom is not free, right? That, that people have lost their lives in the pursuit of freedom as, as, an, as people who belong to a nation, right? And, and in our culture, freedom kind of means you don't get to tell me how I'm going to act or who I'm going to be. And I understand why we want to have that sense of freedom. But when we think about the, the kind of freedom, how thankful we are, right, to have choices and options. But Paul would say, well, you have choices and options. You're either going to be more like Jesus or you're not. And don't you want to be free to become who God dreams you can be? That's the challenge, right, that Paul's wrestling with. Now, uh, I, we're, we're coming out of that, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, and we're going to do that in just a moment. But what I want you to bear in mind is that's the backdrop. He's wrestling with it. The two specific examples that he uses as he talks about freedom, he talks about, okay, what do you do in a church community when some people 
feel confident enough in their relationship with God, and they have enough of a sense of God's mission to reach the world that they go voluntarily to feasts where the meat that people are eating there has been previously sacrificed to idols. And there's people in our church that that's been a part of of their lives, and it used to mean something else, but now they don't believe in those idols. In fact, they don't even believe that those idols were real, but in order to have interactions with people at these huge feasts that they would have in Corinth, some of the church members are going to those feasts. And others are judging them for it because they're nervous about it. They're nervous about how it looks. They're nervous about the message it sends. They're they're nervous that some of their fellow church members might actually be involved in idol worship. And Paul says, in that kind of moment, in that kind of tension, in that conflict in the church, we don't give up on each other. We've got to work through this. And we've got to figure out how those of you who are comfortable doing that, don't try to force the others to, to participate in the same way that you are. And he also is speaking to those who are passing judgment to say, look, not all of us are going to inhabit, embody God's mission in the same exact way. Some of us are going to be able to go certain places that others of us just shouldn't go. And then he moves on to say, look, and I have rights as an apostle that I could insist on. And again, right, this language of freedom and rights, it, it is at the core of, of a lot of our, our sense of good life. And so he talks about, look, I have all kinds of rights as an apostle. I could make these demands on you as a church. I could make these demands on the community. But I don't want to make any demand on the community that might cause somebody to stumble in their relationship with, with Jesus. I have rights. And nobody's taking them away from me. I'm willingly laying them down for the sake of another. Okay? And now we're going to read together 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Even though I'm a free person with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. And when I'm with the Gentiles who don't follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I don't ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Now, he's delineating here between following the entire law of Moses, as it's given in the Old Testament, and following the the lived law, right? The lived example of Jesus. He's saying not anything goes, right? But he is making significant adjustments to connect with these people. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to share the good news and partner in its blessings. So this is kind of the the payoff in terms of Paul trying to say, okay, when we're free to be anyone we want to be, Christians have already promised they want to be like Jesus, right? So we're free to be more like Christ. And when we think about what does it mean to be somebody who's not forced to serve anyone, why would we choose to serve everyone? Well, it's because of Jesus' example, but it's also because Paul's convinced 
that serving others is the best way of reaching others. Serving others is the best way of of reaching others. Now, what's interesting is the, the serve, service is, is not just something that Paul's doing, like, you know, a, a to-do list of, of tasks where he's going to try to just make sure that if he fulfills every need that you feel like you have, uh, then suddenly he's going to launch into a gospel presentation, and that's how this is going to work. It's, it's, I think it's more relational than that. And I love this translation, right, because the, the verse that these words come from is typically translated, um, I become all things to all people, that I might win some for Christ. Which is such a, a broad statement that I think it causes us to not remember the verses that lead up to it. And I think this is exactly what Paul's saying. That when he says, I become all things to all people so that I might win some, he, he, I'm trying to find common ground with everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to try to find common ground with people I already know I have a lot in common with. The moment I start to figure out all the ways that we're different, the more I start to think, well, maybe somebody who's more like that group of people can reach that group of people. I'm well equipped to reach the Giants fans, <laughs> right? I'm well equipped to to reach the people with a Church of Christ background. I'm, I'm more equipped uh, to reach those, you know, introverted people who want to have meaningful, deep conversations but just cannot handle, you know, disorganized conversation at a party where I don't know that many people. And you, you, you know, you know who you are. You know the strengths you have. You, you know the things you like, the interests that you, you try to share with other people. And Paul says, yeah, See, the, the tricky thing is we live in a world filled with diversity, filled with people who come from d- different places and they have different perspectives and they have different experiences. And if we're going to reach them, we've got to find common ground. We've got to, we've got to find a starting place. Because when somebody's able to come alongside of you, even if you, you just met them five minutes ago, and you find out that you share something, a passion, a commitment, even a hometown, right? That suddenly there's this new way of interacting that, that Paul believes is essential to our mission of trying to, to reach people, not just with a message, but to, to reach people with a relationship. See, too often, I think, when, when you and I think about sharing the gospel, we're primarily reducing it to a message, but Jesus is the gospel, and Jesus preaches a message but he lives in relationship to all kinds of different people. He lives trying to, to bridge those gaps, right? To, to close the distance. To help people understand that he's not just around them. He's there for them. And Paul is convinced that that is what he's called to do. And the reason he's sharing it with the church in Corinth and the reason we're reading it 2,000 years later is through the Holy Spirit you and I have been called, not just to share a message, but to invite people in to a relationship. I, I struggle with this. I, I really, I've lived my life trying to figure out how to present the message, to be effective at that, to, to be responsible with it. And yet I have found in my life time and again that 
that it's going to take more than talk. That's why we read together 1 Corinthians 8, where he says, you know, there's knowledge and there's love. And a lot of us chase after knowledge, but the problem with knowledge is the more you get it, the more you might think you're better than other people and you get arrogant. But see, love never lets you feel like you're better than other people. Love's about instilling worth not in you, but in that other person and lifting them up. Knowledge puffs up, in the NIV it says. Love builds up. But love takes a lot longer to develop and nurture in our lives than than acquiring knowledge. And so often we are tempted to take that shortcut. And I, I think the primary shift that that Paul, again, all of this is Paul trying to teach us not just what to think, but how to think. He says, okay, here's the suggestion, right? The, the confession he's making from his own life, it's a suggestion that he's giving to us to say, here's how, here's how I do it. I see myself differently so that I'll act differently. And you noticed that when we read it, even if you didn't realize you noticed it, how strange it is that Paul's identity has shifted so much that he can say, when I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. You're a Jew, Paul. What, what is going on here? What, what do you mean when you're with the Jews, you live like a Jew? You've been doing that since you were born. I think that's Paul's way of saying, I don't foundationally see myself as a Jew any longer. I'm a follower of Jesus. I have a Jewish background. I have a Jewish heritage. I have a lot of ways I can connect with Jewish people. But ultimately, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a slave to Christ in service to others. That's who I am. That's my foundational identity. And it raises a really challenging question for me and for you. And the question is, if you chose to see yourself primarily as a slave to Christ in service to others, what would have to change in your life? Man, a lot of things would have to change in my life. You know, I'd, I'd have to change how much I focus on myself in almost every situation. Like my automatic question is, how does this impact me? It takes work for me to move past that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. My life isn't supposed to really be just about me anymore. It's supposed to be about the people I'm in a relationship with. So how does this impact them? Right? That, that's not an instinct for me yet. It's still a practice. My prayer is that someday it becomes an instinct. That I have to actually take a second step to think about myself. I'm not there yet. I would have to change, you know, how much I focus on the friends I already have and like. That I want to spend time with people. It doesn't take work to be with. You know, people who who I have a history with. People who who kind of see the world the same way that I do. You know, I'd have to start having conversations with people on purpose who I know don't see the world the way that I do. And then I'd have to figure out how to stay in a relationship with them even though we're coming at an issue from, from completely different places. I would have to, to find a way to, to push past. And I really struggle with this at times. I think you know this about me. Uh, I, you know, I'm an introverted person. So you push me into social situations where I'm having to meet brand new people who, who might, again, have this different perspective on the world. And I immediately want to just kind of hide 
and ask Lauren to go meet them. You know, like, you do that. You like people? No, I, I like people. I just like people I know, right? I, I need it to be predictable. And, and Paul's saying, no, that's, you're not an introvert first. You're, you're not just a friend of the people you are already friends with first. You're not, you're not just somebody who has a Church of Christ background so you can connect with people at the church. You're not just somebody who grew up in, in the United States so you, you can really connect with people who grew up in it. Like, he's saying, no. No, push past all of that. And what he's, he's saying is, look, for the sake of the gospel, I'm not just trying to share a message. I'm trying to invite people into a relationship. So I am willing to do the difficult work that Jesus died to help me do this work, right? And the work is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross any cultural boundary I have to. I, I'm going to close any, any kind of distance that exists because of of religious division. I'm, I'm going to find a way to move past racial tension and problems that are so complicated and complex that I'm tempted to say, you know, none of us can fix this, so let's just try to be nice to each other in the meantime, and, and we're just not really going to try to work to heal the brokenness in our culture and in our lives. I'm done. There's more that divides us than I can figure out how to unite us. Like, we don't say that out loud, but if you look often at how we tend to, to just kind of throw up our hands and give up on the really difficult problems in society, we have, we've made the decision that Jesus might have been able to do it, but we can't. So, so please stop asking us. And Paul is going to keep asking us. Because for Paul, the church is the people that we just don't give up on closing the distance. We don't give up. If this, if this strategy doesn't work, we try another one. Now, I, I want to point out to you, look, when, when you have that phrase, I become all things to all people, there's a cynical side to us in our culture that think, well, Paul's just kind of being, you know, like a, a shifty politician. He's just telling people what they want to hear. You know, he's pretending to be a Jew when he's with Jews. He's pretending to be a Gentile when he's a Gentile. This, this is not about us becoming shifty politicians or moral chameleons. That's why he's struggling so much to say, look, I don't think I'm under the authority of the Mosaic law, but I haven't abandoned the law of Christ, the law of love. There's a law that's, that's giving structure to his life. So I want us to read together this translation uh, by Eugene Peterson. That I, it's just, you know, the message is like any single person translation. There's certain passages I think, uh, I don't know if he got that as, as close as I'd like him to. And then there's others where I think, man, that's really good. This is really good. I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, you know any of those? Loose living immoralists, you know any of those? The defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. See, because he can't, right? He's already committed to living the Jesus way of life. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but this is the key. I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Now, isn't that interesting? When we think about how we're going to share, not just the message of the gospel, but the, the relationship the gospel makes possible, all of the relationships that the gospel makes possible, that the starting place is not to ask someone to come to us, to enter our world and see things from our point of view, but it's the, it's the exact opposite. 
I think this is the limitation to church growth strategies that put all of the pressure on people to come find us. There's a term for that, right? Seeker-sensitive. You know, you, you try to make sure that if people find us, that this will be the most welcoming environment possible. That's really important, but it's only half the story. Paul says, no, you don't just sit around and wait for people to find you and try to be friendly when they show up. You search for them relentlessly. You never give up on trying to figure out how to enter somebody's world and experience things from their point of view. And what I think this gets us to is this challenging reality, right? It is only, it is only when we figure out how to see the world from someone else's point of view that we can help them see Jesus in the world from where they're standing. It's only when we're, we're with them. You know, I, if I had to really simplify what the gospel means, you're not alone, you don't have to be afraid, and you can be made new. You're not alone, you don't have to be afraid, you could be made new. Now, you could tell somebody that when you're not with them, But it is so much more true and powerful if when you say to somebody, you're not alone, you don't have to be afraid, you can be made new, that you're right there with them, right? That it gives a depth and a strength and a power that helps people realize it's not just about agreeing to certain ideas being true or not true, it's it's this lived experience of Jesus being present in the world, sometimes, you got to be honest, even for us, it's really challenging to see Jesus in the world. You know, I, I think back to a couple of people in my life where I, I found this to be true, and th- this was kind of accidental. In, in other words, this wasn't something I meant to do, but I, at, at the church I was at before, uh, I ended up meeting a guy after church one day, and, and his name was Scott, and he and his family had a, a little bit of a Christian background, but they'd been away from Christianity for a long time. And the reason that I was meeting Scott is I was currently, this was, this was a while back, I was, I was at that time battling testicular cancer, and the whole church knew it, and Scott had an extremely rare form of spinal cancer that was terminal. And so the, the person who brought Scott to meet me, just the, the connection point was cancer. And so we started, we actually started a cancer support group. And so Scott and I met together with other people in our church who were battling cancer. And we talked about what it was like to go through that journey, to have those questions, to have those fears. Scott was able to say things. You know, not, none of us had the exact same cancer journey, but you just wrestle with the same kinds of, of thoughts and, and you, you have the same kinds of obstacles. You know, you're having treatment and you don't feel good and you start to ask the really big questions about life. You know, and, and a little while later, we, we got to gather together around Scott and his wife as they renewed their wedding vows as time was running out. And then I was the one who sat down with his wife to tell their children that daddy wasn't going to come home from the hospital. And then I was the one who drove her home 
after he passed away, and I was the one who did his funeral. And throughout all of that, I kept wanting to pull away because the thing holding us to one another was cancer. And he was living the worst-case scenario for me. And I would never choose that as a connection point, but I'm telling you, it, it radically changed Scott's ability to come back to faith because somebody was standing next to him saying, you're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. You can be made new. And he, he listened to those words differently for me because of where I was, where I was standing. So it leads us to our foundational truth, right, which is this idea that the best way to reach people with the good news of the gospel is to show them that we want to connect with them more than we want to convince them. I think too often I fall into trying to convince people more than I'm trying to connect with them. And, and here's the thing. You've learned this too. People are far more likely to listen to something new or something challenging. They're, they're willing to listen to you if they know that you have a real connection, an authentic relationship with them. Now, I'm not saying that we start a bunch of friendships with people with a countdown timer floating in midair in our imagination where we're just becoming their friends so that we can launch into some conversation at some point. Like if, if we start to turn people, if we reduce people into something that becomes our achievement, they'll feel that from the outset, and that doesn't feel like real relationship, right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that if we care about the people we're in relationship with, eventually, just like Paul, we're going to think, I want to meet all your needs, but the greatest need you have is to come into contact with somebody, to connect with somebody who can share the good news of the gospel with you. That you're not alone and you don't have to be afraid and you can be made new. Right? And I want to be with you through all of that. I want to close with this story. Because Scott Gibson and I connected on, on accident. Right? But I, I have this, this memory in my heart of a, a young man named Robert who I went to school with. And he came up to me worried after school one day, and he said, I know that we don't know each other really at all, but I, I'm pretty sure I heard you once tell somebody your dad's a preacher. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> what, what is that? Where are we going here? And he said, my mom kicked me out yesterday. Could I come stay with you? Now, at this point in my life, I was as Church of Christ and, and as kind of in a Christian bubble as you could possibly be, and it made me nervous to invite Robert into our, our lives and our home. Robert came from a very different background. You know, I listened to like Stephen Curtis Chapman and Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, and he listened to Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, and, <laughs> and he was putting these posters up in my room. That I was like, my mom wouldn't let me put that poster up in here, but she never said a word that Robert put it up in there. And, you know, we got close to the time of the year where we always got our family pictures, and my parents included him in our family pictures. And they, I would come into, you know, conversations late at night that my dad would be having with Robert or my mom would be having with Robert, and then Robert would talk to me. We were sharing a room. We were sharing, you know, a bunk bed in my room. And it's because my parents made the decision, right, that we were going to connect with Robert, and then we were going to trust that if, if God was going to find a way to use that connection to convince Robert of what really mattered and, and what he was going to believe and who he was going to become. And I will never forget when I got to watch my parents late one night, we drove up to the church and they baptized Robert into Christ. They made the decision 
to create space to close the distance. And most days I'm not nearly enough like them. If we're going to find a way to reach people, they have to believe, it has to be true, that we're really just trying to reach them. That we're trying to invite them into the relationship we have with God. That we're never going to give up on them. And I'm telling you, we don't need to preach a bunch of sermons at people as much as we need to find a way to stand with them. You're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. You could be made new. Who doesn't want to believe that's true? We're going to stand together in a moment and sing. And as we do, what I want to encourage you to do this week is just pray for God to open the door for you to connect with someone, to close the distance. Someone you don't currently have a relationship with, you don't really know, and ask not only for that open door, but ask for the courage to step through it. Because if we're going to help people see Jesus in their lives, we have to share life with them. Let's stand together and sing.